You're listening to Just One of the Guys, the podcast officially endorsed by the ASPCA as being 100% bipedal, talking terrier friendly. Hello and welcome to another fantastic episode of Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast. This is a podcast covering the Green Lantern comics from cover date June 1990 up until cover date November 2004, with a special emphasis on the characters of Guy Gardner and Kyle Rayner, my two favorite and the most underappreciated Green Lanterns of the Green Lantern Corps. Hi again, my name is Sean Eagle, and I'm going to be your host for this podcast, and this week, sadly, we're going to be covering the final issue in the Guy and His Nord storyline. This has been the most fun that I have had in a long time, and I'm hoping you guys are enjoying me bringing these reviews to you, because I sure am having fun doing them. Like I've said in prior episodes, Guy Gardner is my favorite Green Lantern, and he usually gets dumped upon by most of the people who read the Green Lantern comics, and he's kind of been relegated to sort of a buffoonish character, and this comic, in my opinion, kind of sets him apart and gives him, you know, both a comedic outlet, especially by pairing him up with the ridiculous character of Nort, but it also shows that he is pretty much a force to be reckoned with as a Green Lantern. Up until now, most of the characterizations of Guy Carter have been of him being an oafish buffoon that basically is a complete egotist and can't get anything done without, you know, backup from more intelligent superheroes. This comic set him out on his own, gave him a task to fulfill, and showed him to be a real hero. In my opinion, Guy's kind of like the sort of John McClane character. And yes, this opinion has kind of been cemented by some of the information given to me by Thomas DJ. He's the person who's not well-liked, who may be kind of abrasive and brash in the way he does things. But in the end, he gets things done, and he's basically the hero you need to get things done. Again, I'd like to thank everyone who's been downloading the show, either from the website, justoneoftheguys.lipson.com, or from the iTunes link. I've been getting a lot of good downloads this past couple of months, and I really appreciate every one of you downloading the show and listening. Well, I assume you're listening. I mean, you could just be downloading the show for fun and letting it sit around in your iPod for months on end without listening to it, but that really serves no purpose for either you or me. I'd also like to thank a couple of you for writing in, especially Stephen J. Rogers, who wrote in with the note that he couldn't believe that I mentioned the clown-like Poglacci in the last episode without having a mention of the joke from the Watchmen comic where Rorschach relates the story of the depressed man who goes to a psychiatrist and asks for help 
and the psychiatrist tells him to go to see the opera I Pagliacci, and that will take care of his depression. Unfortunately, the person going to the psychiatrist mentions that, unfortunately, he is Pagliacci, the sad clown. I'll admit, I completely forgot about the reference from Watchmen, and probably because I was trying to block out the Zack Snyder film from my memory. I mean, it wasn't a bad film, but it was Zack Snyder, so there you have it. Steve also surmised that the whole thing about all the trading cards with baseball and basketball and football being inserted into comics was basically based on the whole speculation market that was going on throughout the 90s. This was the thing that boosted the sales of ridiculously over-the-top image comics like Youngblood and Wildcats and what have you, and basically made Rob Liefeld, or Liefeld and Jim Lee basically household names. He also mentioned that his local comic book shop used to be called One If By Cards, Two If By Comics, thus pretty much saying that cards had a bigger place as comics in the whole selling of things to kids. I also got an email from the excellent podcaster Charlie Niemeyer, who hosts Superman in the Bronze Age, and also co-hosts on Michael Bradley's Thrilling Adventures of Superman podcast. Check both of them out, won't you? who wrote in to say that he was just getting in the show and really enjoying it. He also mentioned they didn't really care for Guy Gardner. He was more of a Kyle Rayner fan, and I don't begrudge him a bit for that. Like I've said before, Guy is a tough character to get into. But, Charlie, don't you worry. Here and, well, probably around the end of the year, we should be getting into the Kyle Rayner books in this Green Lantern series. And I've got to tell you, as much as I'm loving the Guy Gardner stuff, I can't wait for the Kyle Rayner stuff either. And lastly, one of the cool things, Charlie is also a podcaster from Oklahoma, so it's good to know that there's more than one of us Okies out there doing some podcasting. But enough with the pre-show, let's take a break, play some promos, and then we'll get on to Green Lantern number 12. Here we go. Rocketed as a baby from the exploding planet Krypton, Kal-El grew to manhood on Earth, whose yellow sun and lighter gravity gave him fantastic superpowers. In the city of Metropolis, he poses as TV newsman Clark Kent, but battles evil all over Earth and beyond as Superman. Superman of the Bronze Age is a weekly podcast covering the adventures of Superman from 1970 to 1986. Join host Charlie Niemeyer at superbronze1970.libson.com. Hey gang, Tom DJ of Better in the Dark here. As I've discussed in the podcast, which you can find at earth2.net, I suffer from mental illness. Part of this illness includes struggling with suicidal thoughts. Now I'm lucky. I've got great friends, family, and yes, even fans who give me the strength to conquer those thoughts every day. Some people aren't so lucky. For them, there's the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, providing support and advice to pull those people through the darkest moments of their lives. For the months of March and April 2012, Better in the Dark is running a special BITD challenge. We're asking our fans to go to suicidepreventionlifeline.com and donate at least $10. The donations are tax-deductible, and you'll be doing something truly great. On top of that, if you forward a copy of your receipt to Better in the Dark at earth2.net, that's Better in the Dark at earth-2.net, you may be eligible for special goodies from us, a special director's court on Brian De Palma that you'll be listed as co-producer on, plus the possibility of free audio commentaries on some of De Palma's films from me and my co-host, Derek Ferguson. For more details, listen to recent episodes of Better in the Dark. 
Please help me send a lifeline out to those who need it. Meet the BITD Challenge. Thank you for your time and help. Why, hello there, lovely ladies. May I just say that you look quite beautiful in your matching Slave Leia metal bikinis? You have permission to come aboard my den of nerd erotica. Some people would call it my mom's garage. I call it 10.1 forward. Can I interest you in a death stick? Nope. I was just kidding. Have a shot of trying Once you get loosened up, we can play a friendly game of strip fizzbin. Let me loosen that strap. Hey suckers, Maury Clawhammer here, okay? You want your freaking Star Wars? I got your Star Wars right here! What about the Star Trek? You like that shit too, right? Right? That's what I thought. Well, we got that and we got more freaking comics than you can read in your entire miserable goddamn life. Hey, there's even a girl who talks about unicorns and goddamn Harry Potter and M... 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 Them goddamn Oriental cartoons with the big eyes. So you get your ass over to the Two True Freaks podcast at twotruefreaks.libsyn.com. That's spelled L-I-B-S-Y-N, alright? Alright? Good. You can get there on the internets and choose from hundreds of quality Two True Freaks podcasts. And would it kill you to buy a goddamn t-shirt? Remember, Two True Freaks. Two True Freaks. Two True Freaks. Two True Freaks. In a world where planets die. I have come to the conclusion Krypton is doomed. Did I hear him right? Where good and evil fight a never-ending battle. But millions of people will die. Billions. Once again, the press underestimates me. One man will become a hero. Every world needs its heroes, Clark. They inspire us to be better than we are. Protect us from the darkness that's just around the corner. One man will rise to the challenge. Look, up in the sky, it's a bird! It's a plane! One man will wear spandex. Well, one thing's for sure, nobody's going to be looking at your face. Mom? <laughs> well, they don't call them tights for nothing. <laughs> Presenting The Thrilling Adventures of Superman, a podcast looking at the Man of Steel's history via his earliest adventures in comics, radio, and film. Featuring reviews, commentary, creator spotlights, and more. Join the adventure at greatcrypton.com. And we're back. Be sure to check out all the podcasts that I promo on the show. They're all really great podcasts. And also be sure, if you can, give some money to the National Suicide Prevention Helpline. Thomas GJ would really appreciate it. And if you send in your receipt for your donation, and the donation's above $10, Thomas and Derek will record a commentary for a certain Brian De Palma film. And from what I know about Thomas, he's not the biggest Brian De Palma fan. So... Let's see if we can get Thomas to do something he probably isn't willing to do anyway. It's kind of akin to getting Scott Gardner to watch The Dark Knight and do a commentary on that. But again, speaking of commentary, here's my commentary describing the Green Lantern comic number 12. 
Greenlander number 12 had a cover price of $1 US, $1.25 Canada, and 50 pence UK. The title was The Master Plan. The writer was Gerard Jones, the penciler was Joe Staten, inker this time was Pablo Marcos, letterer was Albert Guzman, colorist was Anthony Tolan, associate editor was Kevin Dooley, and the editor was Andy Helfer. The story opens to the tortured face of Guy Gardner, surrounded by the laughing floaty heads of the myriad Sinestros. Saying that he won't give up the location of Hal Jordan, the Sinestros find enjoyment in the fact they will just have to Guy for no reason. Guy questions why there are so many Sinestros, since there used to only be one, and he is dead. The Sinestros scoff at Guy's ignorance as they reveal that they are merely Quartian weapons disguised as Sinestro, and their giant leader is only a flame-belching statue that they will gladly use to kill Guy. Fearing for Guy's life, Nort pleads for the Green Lantern to tell them Hal's whereabouts, but Guy tells him to shut up. Realizing that isn't working, the Quartian cultists bring in their ace in the hole, Newman, Nort's uncle. Newman reveals the Weaponer's ultimate scheme, to set up false Green Lantern Corps to discredit the real one, using bums like himself and Nort as lanterns, to make the real lanterns look stupid. Newman admits that when he found out the true plan, he tried to fight it, but in doing so, he lost his nose in the fight. With plot exposition out of the way, the Weaponers hold their lightning bolts to Newman's throat. Despite Guy's scolding, the defeated Nort gives the Weaponers the information that they want. The location of Hal Jordan. As the Weaponers enter the Matter Universe on their rocket cycles to hunt down Hal, Nort bemoans his decision to tell the Cordians about Hal. Guy, back in his shackles next to the miserable mud, tries to think of a way out of the anti-Owen prison, but realizes that only Hal can come up with a clever plan of escape. Not the dumb lantern, Guy Gardner. I mean... Guy couldn't reason that the anti-Owen power would be like antimatter, exploding when it touches regular Owen power. Stupid old Guy Garter wouldn't be able to figure out that the artificial anti-Owen power reserves would be far less than Owen reserves. Therefore, eventually the explosions would burn it out. Yeah, Hal would come up with that solution. Not the ridiculous buffoon Guy Gardner. No way. Of course, Nort informs Guy that he did just come up with the plan himself prompting a surprised, oh, from Guy. Knowing that the pain from the use of his ring could kill him, Guy steals himself and begins to blast away at his shackles. Cut to deep space, where Hal Jordan has had little luck finding new recruits. In fact, he's only recruited three new Corps members. But as he flies off to think about his predicament, we see that he is being followed closely by the shadowy image of the Weaponers. Back in the antimatter universe, Guy is wrapped with pain as Nort begs him to stop. Giving it one more blast, Guy short-circuits the anti-Owen power holding them captive and frees himself and Nort. Realizing they can't get a message to Hal without going through the cultist, Guy pops a Hal Jordan construct to distract them and then beams them all with baseball pitches to the head. Guy and Nort race to the quote-unquote dimensional bridge in the Sinestro throne room until Guy realizes that he doesn't need the Kate Dine sidekick and drops him before he goes all fighty McFightenstein. Copyright Andrew Leyland, 2011, all rights reserved, on the cultists. Feeling sorry for himself, Norton resolves himself to being a failure, 
until he catches a whiff of the weaponer who stole his ring. As the weaponers close in on Hal Jordan, and the statue of Sinestro breathes its yellow flame on Guy, all looks lost as Nort is held captive by his ring-thieving quarry. But, in a moment of rage, Nort summons his inner terrier and savagely attacks the weaponer, retrieving his ring. Nort runs to the side of the downed Green Lantern, and despite the cultist's warnings of the loss of his ring's power, fires a beam of green energy at the statue, blowing it to pieces. Crawling to the portal, Guy beams a message to Hal about the impending attack as the remaining cultists mercilessly beat Nort. With the yellow flame affecting his ring, Guy jumps back into the fray and pummels the cultists with some good old-fashioned fisticuffs. In the Matter universe, the weaponers have lost track of Hal Jordan. As they try to discover where he went, they are hit by blasts of green energy, shot at them by their intended prey and the three newest recruits of the Green Lantern Corps. Meanwhile, Guy is fighting to make his way to the portal with Nord in tow. The flame from the statue of Sinestro has set their fortress on a path to destruction, and just as Guy and Nord make it to the portal, the place goes up in a massive explosion. Traveling back to the portal, Guy and Nord are callously dropped on the Poglachi homeworld, only to be greeted by the foe Green Lantern Corps. Itching for round two, the Urzatz Lanterns threaten Guy, only to have him relay the fact that their rings aren't working anymore. As Guy is about to lay an emerald smackdown on them, he realizes that it just isn't worth the effort to beat on these losers. Hearing the remark, Nort feels that he's in the same league with the powerless Lanterns, until Guy mentions that the act of bravery the likes of what Nort pulled would impress some people. In fact, maybe someone... I don't know who, could put in a good word with the Guardians, or something. With the prospect of coming a real Green Lantern, Guy and Nort head out into space, as Guy threatens to yank Nort's tongue out if he keeps licking his face. And there you have it. The end to Guy Gardner's first solo story. And boy, I'm hoping you guys found it as fun as I did. It was really great to see Guy in the first few issues of the Green Lantern book and his interactions with Hal and John. But it was really great for me to see him stand out on his own and see how he would work as just a Green Lantern by himself. And the fact that he had a great story written by Jones and penciled by the awesome Joe Staten just made it all the more enjoyable. Like I said before, this is why I got into the character of Guy Gardner. And I hope that in some way I was able to show you why I believe this is a great character read to read in the comics. But let's go ahead and get to some notes. Now, overall... This comic, the artwork wasn't as great as the prior ones. I mean, Staten was really good, but some of the artwork just doesn't look as crisp as the last few issues. I'm wondering if it might be Marcos's inking, but I'm not really certain. I'll chalk it up to that. I'm not saying anything negative about Pablo Marcos, but it did seem a bit off, and he was the only person that changed from the issue, from the prior issue to this one. So. Unfortunately, I think the blame is going to have to fall on him. 
Let's go ahead and start with the cover, which has a really menacing close-up of Nord. Now, throughout the entire issue, Nord has kind of been portrayed to be sort of a goofball, and the cover statement really draws a detailed picture of a sort of growling Nord with his eyes all bloodshot. Looks like he's ready to tear into something. And Yes, I know, little terriers, you know, I've got a couple of... I Well, I had a couple of Scottish terriers, and now I have a couple of Jack Russells. And yeah, they're little dogs, but... When they want to be, they can be mean little bastards, and it looks like Nord is definitely channeling that mean streak. Page 2, panel 5, we get these stereotypical, completely unrealistic, Mission Impossible face removal. Yes, here we get to see that all the weaponers, all the cultists, were actually wearing plastic Sinestro masks, pretending to be the Green Lantern villain. It was kind of a stretch in the TV show and the movies, and it's just as much of a stretch here in the comic. Page 3, panel 2. We get the giant Sinestro that's sitting on the throne that looked so menacing in the last issue. Well, it just turns out to be a big statue that belches flame. Now, that's kind of neat because it's a sort of Wizard of Oz reference, but also I'm kind of wondering that, you know, a statue that belches flame, isn't that going to make it really, really hot in the room? Plus, I'm not certain if they're violating OSHA regulations by having a flame-belching statue in the middle of an enclosed area. I mean, that could really do some damage if something were, oh, to go wrong. Page 5, we get Nort's Uncle Newman playing basically expositional news network as he tells the readers, you know, what the weaponers' plans were about setting up the fake Green Lanterns that were all goofballs to give the world, or I guess the universe, the impression that the Green Lantern Corps were a bunch of idiots. And it all would have worked if it weren't for that meddling Guy Gardner and his silly dog. Page 6, panel 4. I just want to again reiterate that Staten knows how to do dog expressions. Nord, after seeing the weaponers threaten his uncle, just looks completely dejected as he tells the weaponers where Hal Jordan's location is. Like I said, I've got dogs myself, terriers in fact, and this is the way they look when they've done something that they know is bad. It's it's a great piece of artwork, and Staten does a magnificent job in this entire series of issues. Page 7, it's nice to know that not only did the weaponers borrow Hawkman's helmet, but they also borrowed the Hawkman rocket cycles, albeit the Hawkman rocket cycles from the Flash Gordon movie. Squadron 40! That features the awesomeness that is Brian Blessed. Yep, you can't go wrong with having Brian Blessed do anything. Page 8, panel 1. This is kind of just an artistic nitpick, but... Nort's eyes look all wonky. I mean, one's pointing down, one's pointing up. He's got sort of the weird cookie monster googly eye thing going. I think it may just be an art thing, or perhaps an inking thing. Just wanted to point that out. Pages 8 through 9. This is what I'm talking about, about Guy. He knows what he's doing, but he's just so unsure about himself. He completely and totally describes the exact scientific way that he could get out of this trap... But he's so focused on the fact that he's inferior to Hal Jordan that he doesn't even believe that he could do it. And thankfully, Nord is there to wake him out of that funk and basically say, Guy, you know how to do this. Just do it. It's a great character moment for Guy, and it, again, 
shows how guys just racked with self-doubt. And this probably leads to a lot of the ways that he acts kind of like, well, an ass in a bunch of the comics. Page 11, panel 4, we get the same thing with Nort's eyes. They're all kind of googly and point in different directions. And I don't know, I don't want to, I don't want to rag on Pablo Marcus, but it seems that the inking might be a bit off in this issue. Page 14, panel 4. Now we know that Guy's ring would shield him from basically any energy-based attacks, so when the flame hits him, it shouldn't be a problem. So I'm wondering if it's the heat from the flame that's affected him, or the yellow of the flame that the Sinestro cultists are saying that's affected him. No idea. I'm assuming it could be a bit of both. And same page, panel 6, we get a picture of Nort running on all fours, and I really like the notion that whenever Nort reverts to his sort of quote-unquote primal dog self, that he, instead of walking bipedally, will get down on all fours and run. It's a really neat kind of image that Staten puts into the comic. It's, uh, like I said, I can't say enough about Staten's artwork. And then we come to page 15, panel 6, and we get the picture of Nort unleashed, which is... Basically, Nort just coming completely unglued, pulling his lips back and baring his teeth. He's going to chomp into the body of this weaponer and basically tear him a new one. It is all kinds of awesome goodness. And speaking of awesome goodness, you get the shot on page 17, panel 1, of Nort just surrounded in a green sort of halo-ish glow as he points his ring at the Sinestro statue and fires a beam at it blowing it to pieces. It's really cool that they gave Nort a time to shine in this comic as well, because just like Guy, Nort is completely dumped upon as a Green Lantern. Page 18, panel 6, and Guy reciprocates in helping out Nort by coming out and punching the living crap out of the weaponers. He's not using any ring constructs here, he's just using good old fisticuffs, and I'm betting it feels good for Guy. He's letting loose. Page 19, panel 5. We're finally introduced to the three new members of the Green Lantern Corps. And it looks like we've got a sort of squid-like, multi-tentacled alien that kind of looks like Larvox. And then we've got another Chasalon alien, the uh, clear diamond, well, looks like a D20-type alien. And then we've got a giant gray stone-like alien that kind of looks sort of Hulk-like page 20. It's a nice scene that even though Nort doesn't have his ring anymore and he's pretty much helpless, Guy is willing to pull him through the portal to make sure that he gets out alive with him. It's it's kind of a turning point for Guy in that he even though he's not willing to admit it, he's got some feelings for the silly mud. And page 22, we get the final few panels where Guy's telling Nort that someone, he doesn't know who, might just be able to put in a good word with the Guardians, to let Nort become an actual Green Lantern. It's it's a really nice, sort of touching ending to a action-filled, fun-filled series of comics, and I can't say enough about it. It just shows that Guy is a tough-as-nails hero at heart, but down underneath all that machismo, he's got a heart of gold, and he can recognize that even the biggest buffoons can do something heroic and I think it's a great message and I think it's a great story and I hope you guys have all enjoyed it. 
But with the synopsis and notes for the comic out of the way, let's go take a look at some of the amazing and wonderful ads that they've stuck inside this month's issue of Green Lantern. On the front cover, we get ad for Double Dragon 3 for the NES. I think we talked a bit about this last issue. You know, I played it before in the arcades, at least Double Dragon 1 and 2, and I'm certain this is pretty much the same sort of stuff. Typical side-scrolling fighter game. Enjoyable if you like them. Later on, we get an ad for Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Serial, with all the turtles coming out on what I'm assuming is a Donatello-built machine that fires pizza and... Donatello's up there yelling pizza delivery, and the rest of the turtles are saying it's radical-tasting cereal, dudes, and check it out, new pizza-shaped marshmallows in Ninja Turtle cereal. Yes, if there's anything that goes together well, it's marshmallow-shaped pizza slices and crunchy cereal. (sighs) And you thought what Michael Bay was doing to the Ninja Turtles was going to be something horribly bad. Next page, rather than It's Coming, we get It's Here, and it's the new edition of the Dungeons & Dragons game from TSR. So, like I said last time, I guess they've come out with the new editions of the Monster's Manual and Player Handbook, so that you can go ahead and update it all and basically play the same old game over again. Ooh, but this is neat. We get a nice promo poster for the Rocketeer, and you get a sort of stylized version of... Cliff flying out with his helmet looking skyward and the rocket fly, you know, shooting out flames behind him as he's off to fight Nazis. It is a cool image and a great movie. If you guys haven't seen The Rocketeer, do whatever you can to see it. It's one of Joe Johnston's better movies, and it really ties in a lot with the uh, sort of whole Captain America feel. He did 1940s sort of superheroics really well in this movie, and if you had any enjoyment in the Captain America movie, I suggest you go watch The Rocketeer. It is just as awesome. After that, you get a full-page ad from Mile High Comics as they're giving you super specials with 50 Cent and Dollar Comics. So, you know, some of these may still be 50 Cent Comics and Dollar Comics, but I'm hoping that some went up in price. And again, we get the Bam Zoom Pow onomatopoeia selling us baseball cards. I'd like to thank Mr. Stephen J. Rogers for kind of filling me in on why this might be going on in comics, but I'm still not enticed to buying them. Next page, we get a Great Eastern Convention comic book schedule, this time the big one being April 20th and 21st at the Los Angeles Convention Center. And it's got a nice you know, picture of the Tim Drake Robin flying in there to kind of entice you to go to this convention. Later on, we get the stereotypical hodgepodge page, which has basically all the same stuff that it has from the last few issues. Nothing really new here. But on the next page, we get the amazing splash page advertising, it affects the future of every DC superhero. One, it changes forever. And it get this picture of this godlike being with his hands stretched apart and behind him it says Armageddon 2001 with basically all the major heroes from the DC universe standing in front of him and you know I know that Michael and Jeffrey covered this on Crisis from Crisis to Crisis and if I recall they weren't all that enthused with it they had some problems with it but it definitely is an interesting splash poster, 
and it looks like something really cool is going to happen. Too bad, well, I guess editorial things changed that. And finally, on the back page, we get an ad for Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles The Game for the Nintendo Entertainment System. Yeah, I don't think this was the arcade version of the side-scroller. From the images they've got here, it looks more like sort of a Castlevania-type Legend of Zelda game. I never played this one, but I do remember playing the side-scrolling Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles video game on the NES. So, no idea whether this is any good or not. But thankfully, we are graced on the back cover with another Three Musketeers adventure. Part four in a series of God knows how many. This one is gonna be awesome. So, let's hit it. It starts with the caption. High atop the Iger Pass, a team of sports photographers risk their lives for the ultimate shot. Wondering if that's another window, but who knows. And you get the three or four climbers going up there and their stereotypical red, yellow, and blue colored snowsuits, whatever, saying, the first one says, the key to sports photography is being prepared for anything, as he says to the guy beneath him. In the next panel, we see him with his camera looking up going, I've got two cameras, a zoom lens, filters, flashes, extra film. Then we come to the next panel, and he's telling the guy behind him, as a result, I'm never surprised by anything. And the guy who's climbing up above him and getting ready to pull him up says, Wanna bet? And we come down to the final panel and we see the climber sitting at a plateau where the ancient aliens have basically laid a football-length Three Musketeers bar and the guy climbing up says, Wow! Joe, take a picture before we can eat it. And of course Joe replies, I can't. It's too big for this lens. Ha ha ha. Uh, obviously, Joe didn't bring everything. And then we get the final caption of, Where will three musketeers turn up next? Big on chocolate. Yeah, the ancient aliens are basically placing three musketeers bar and everywhere across portions of the earth, basically to mess with anyone who encounters them. It's awesome. Thanks, ancient aliens. But with that wrapping up the issue and essentially wrapping up the guy in his own storyline, I am disappointed to say that these issues have not been reprinted, at least to my knowledge, anywhere yet. Hopefully DC will get around to publishing some trade paperbacks reprinting these issues, because damn it, they're fun stuff that actually I think readers would enjoy. So get on it, DC. However, I hope you will come back next week for another edition of Just One of the Guys, where next time we're going to be covering the double-issue-sized Green Lantern number 13, in which Guy Gardner, Hal Jordan, and Jon Stewart wrap up all the basic story arcs that have been set forth in the first 12 issues, and basically set forward what's going to be happening with Jon on the mosaic world of Oa. It's going to be fun. So we'll see you next Friday. Hope you had a good week, and we'll talk with you later. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast, hosted by yours truly, Sean All images, stories, and music are copyright the respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. This podcast is done solely out of my desire to show the denizens of the internet that comic books can be fun, 
humorous, compelling, thought-provoking, and exciting, while not having to fall into the weary tropes of the 1990s. I'm not in any way doing this for monetary gain, which irritates my wife to no end. All feedback to the show can be sent to the show's Gmail account at justoneoftheguyspodcast at gmail.com. All feedback, positive and negative, is warmly welcome. All spam bots are warmly welcome too, as long as your definition of a warm welcome is for them to die horribly in a fire. The website address for the show can be found at justoneoftheguys, all one word, dot libsyn, spelled L-I-B-S-Y-N, dot com. There you can find the RSS feed, as well as scans of the covers and whatever else I feel like putting up. Look for me on iTunes. Just search for Just One of the Guys Podcast. You can also search for me on Facebook. I mean, you won't find me there because I don't have an account on Facebook. But if you have enough free time to listen to me babble on about funny book characters, you obviously can spare some time to wander around on Facebook. Thanks for downloading and listening, and come back next Friday for another episode of Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast. The opening music for today's show is Pink Floyd and their song, The Dogs of War, off the album Momentary Lapse of Reason. You can either download the song or the album from iTunes, or if you'd like to help out a friend of mine, go to twotruefreaks.libson.com, click the Amazon.com banner at the top of their site, and go download the song from there. You'll be helping out a podcast friend of mine, and keeping some great quality audio podcast on the air. <laughs>